Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. If you are a listener who loved our episode on the Gospel of Mary Magdalene or on Mary, Mother of God, then you will love the texts that we are discussing today. Woman Spirit Rising, a feminist reader in religion, and Weaving the Visions, New Patterns in Feminist Spirituality, both edited by Carol P. Christ and Judith Plasco. These books contain essays that were written in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, and they reflect a movement within feminism that was grappling with the patriarchal aspects of religion, and rather than rejecting religion altogether, as so many feminists were doing at the time, these authors were working to retain the spiritual, the mystical, and the ritual parts of religion while still confronting and challenging patriarchy. As an introduction, I'm going to read just a couple of sentences from the 1992 version of Woman Spirit Rising, which is the edition that we read for the show today. It says that some feminists, quote, are convinced that religion is profoundly important. For them, the discovery that religions teach the inferiority of women is experienced as a betrayal of deeply felt spiritual and ritual experience. They believe the history of sexism in religions shows how deeply sexism has permeated the human psyche, but does not invalidate human need for ritual, symbol, and myth. While differing on many issues, the contributors to this volume agree that religion is deeply meaningful in human life and that the traditional religions of the West have betrayed women. They are convinced that religion must be reformed or reconstructed to support the full human dignity of women, end quote. So that's the thesis of today's works, and no one better to discuss this issue with than the magnificent Maxine Hanks. Welcome back, Maxine. <laughs> well, thank you. It's uh, it's an honor to be with the uh, magnificent Amy Olivest. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to have you back. Um, we've already been so enriched by your wisdom and experience on this podcast. Um, so super excited to have you. And I feel like you're, I mean, you're an expert on many women's studies texts. I know you've taught a bunch of them, but my understanding is that like personally in kind of in the tradition of the gospel of Mary Magdalene and mm -hmm. like letters on the equality of the sexes by Sarah Grimke, you're a person of faith and maybe even most at home in feminist theology. Is that right? Oh, yeah, that, that is right. Uh, I'm a feminist theologian and historian whose you know, public work and scholarly work is focused on women's studies and women's history uh, within religion, mainly LDS, Mormon religion, and Christianity, those two uh, religious areas. But my spiritual path, my personal faith journey, um, really, really overlaps with my scholarly path. They're very intertwined. My work on recovering feminism and Mormon history and theology overlapped with my own personal search to find a feminist voice in Mormon culture and, and my own path through uh, feminist theology and clergy formation and ministry. That, that overlapped with my scholarly work on feminist theology and Christian tradition. So I found that both my spiritual search and path was uh, really enriched by and formed by my work in these two religions, in Mormonism and Christianity. So I kind of found my way in life um, as a feminist, as I found my way as a scholar in feminist work. And the two were 
really interdependent, really uh, forming each other. Plus, I'm a I'm a deeply spiritual person. I'm I'm a kind of a mystic, mm-hmm. and I've always relied on my relationship with God as my sort of primary avenue of of knowledge um, uh, to help me with decisions about both my life and my professional path. So. I made my decisions about my scholarly and professional work based on answers to prayers. So, mm-hmm. and I am, uh, along with being a theologian and a historian, I'm a minister and chaplain. So I sort of, I see spirituality as uh, one lens or standpoint or position or approach, one um, hermeneutic method among others when I'm looking at history and theology so my work brings my spirituality and my scholarship together. And I've, I've always felt that in order to do an adequate job of, of um, feminist work on um, women's status in religion, that I need all three lenses of gender studies and history and um, theology, theological studies and religious studies. So I try to bring all three together in my work as a kind of an interdisciplinary approach. Hmm. And, and personal spirituality is one of those lenses. Yes. And then if you're comfortable, actually, I'd love if you could talk about your own journey a little bit more, Maxine, um, some more about you as a feminist theologian and and include some about your book, which is titled Women and Authority, Reemerging Mormon Feminism. I know listeners would love to hear about that um, and kind of what happened when you published it and... Um, how that impacted your life and just kind of tell that story if you're willing. I guess the main thing to mention about my work and my book, um, particularly as it's related to women's spirit rising is that my book, women in authority really parallels women's spirit rising. They both take a nearly identical approach, even in the way both books are structured. (laughs) And um, they're both anthologies that collect published uh, articles that that feminists had been writing, and both both Women's Spirit Rising and my book Women in Authority are trying to capture what we saw as sort of the landmark uh, p- feminist pieces uh, that address feminist theology. And um, and the other parallel is that I was working on mine exactly ten years after um, Women's Spirit Rising came out in 1979. I began working on Women in Authority in 1988-89 and then published it in 1992. However, in 1979, when Women's Spirit Rising came out, um, a decade before I published Women in Authority, I was working through the very same issues that Carol Christ and Judith Pascal were dealing with at the very same time, you know, as a feminist myself. Uh, in 1978 and 79, I was a feminist and I used that label for myself. And I was also serving as an LDS missionary, Hmm. a full-time missionary in Florida when it was the pivotal state for the ERA battle. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So that was my (laughs) kind of feminist uh, baptism of fire because um, I noticed and was frustrated uh, as a missionary, I was frustrated by the dominance of male voices and sexism regarding women and their own experience and bodies and views. I mean, I experienced the mission experience as extremely sexist and male dominated. And, and in 1978, women were really looked at as kind of strange alien creatures. We were so utterly other that it was really Mm -hmm. harmful. Um, So I was frustrated by, 
by that. And I was also frustrated too, by how few women were willing to express their true feelings and frustrations and, and just be upfront with their concerns or, or what they were feeling um, instead of just going along with what the men were seeing and saying. And so that was a big frustration for me. The only exception I sort of was aware of at that time was Mormons for ERA and Sonia Johnson. Mm. Um, because Sonia Johnson was excommunicated in 1979 while I was serving as a missionary. Mm. And since that happened during my mission and I was back East where it was, you know, kind of happening, it really impacted me deeply. And, um, and so, um, there really, really weren't very many Mormon women who were kind of standing up to the sexism in Mormon culture. So at that time in 1979, uh, 78, 79, when Women's Spirit Rising was coming together and being published. At that same time, I keenly felt the need for validating women's own feminist perspectives and our, in religion and our own personal female relationship to God and also our relationship to priesthood as women. My relationship to priesthood was a huge issue for me. It's the reason why I went on a mission, because I saw a full-time mission as the only way a Mormon woman could sort of experience ministry or a, a priestly calling. And that was one of the big reasons why I went because I, I wanted that experience. So I, I was keenly, deeply pursuing uh, a sense of authority and ministry myself at that time. Um, and I truly felt that I had received some form of, of uh, ministry and priesthood when I was set apart as a missionary and then went through the temple. I, I had a very visceral spiritual experience that, that I had just received some kind of mantle of priestly authority. And it was very real. And it gave me the, the sense of authority and uh, confidence I had as a missionary to serve with, with power and conviction. Um, so I actually felt that I was a valid minister of the LDS church. And I, I, I remember going around and telling people, I have a ministerial certificate just like the elders, it's right here. It's right here. I'll show it to you. It's this white certificate. Um, <laughs> it was a big deal to me that I was uh, an official minister of the LDS Church. Yeah, I made a lot out of that. So I was really personally grappling with those issues that that Carol and Chris, uh, Carol, Kristen, and Judith Pascal were um, grappling with and trying to deal with in their book the same year in 1979, when um, also Sonia. As I said, Sonia Johnson was excommunicated. So it was a bit, 79 was a big year. It was a big mm -hmm. year for me and it was a big year for feminist theology. But at that time, even though I knew spiritually and it was just an inner spiritual sense that Mormon women did have their own unique relationship to God and to priesthood, I had no idea how to defend that or document it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I knew that we did have an inherent Mormon feminism and a tradition in our own because I'd been aware of that since 1976 when I was at Rick's college, which is now BYU, Idaho, because I read the women's exponent and exponent two. When I was a student at Rick's, I found it on the shelves, which blew my mind. That was the first um, sign or confirmation or evidence I found that, that feminism was real and Mormonism and I wasn't alone. So that was a huge moment for me. But, um, but I really, I didn't know how to find the sources or present the evidence for our, our kind of our feminist theology and our own um, women's relationship to God and to priesthood. And so that came later in the eighties. And I think it's extremely important to understand how incredibly groundbreaking 
and vital Women's Spirit Rising was for its time in 1979 and what it accomplished. Um, and even though I wasn't aware of the book at that time, you know, it, it was huge and it was happening right when it needed to. Yeah, I'd love you to talk about that right now, actually. Could you share some some kind of larger historical context about feminist theology in American culture a little bit, kind of to situate Woman's Spirit Rising for when it came out? And then you could circle back to your own book and how that work fits in to that context. Yeah, that'd be perfect. I'd love to. So uh, like I said, Women's Spirit Rising arrived at a crucial year which was a crucial shift in second wave feminism, just like sexual politics had embodied and arrived at a time of crucial shift in feminism from the decade of the sixties to the decade of the seventies, back in 1970. Um, in the same way, women's spirit rising captured this, and this kind of shift in feminist theology from the decade of the seventies into the decade of the eighties, right in 1979. Um, and that that shift from the 70s into the 80s was the shift into the last of the three decades of the second wave of feminism. So as we had talked about before with sexual politics, you know, the 60s feminism formed the theories and goals of feminism. And then 70s feminism took those goals and theories wider into the public, into popular discourse, workplace, homes, media. But feminism was still new and struggling to prove itself and persuade the public, you know, of its validity. Uh, and then in the 80s, feminism arrived and found mainstream acceptance and validity and normalcy. It was no longer freakish. It became an integral feature in colleges and the media and the workplace and in breaking the glass ceiling, uh, like we see in that uh, 80s movie, Working Girl, hmm. kind of cap captured that sort of the arrival of feminism in the 1980s, the, the last decade of the second wave. So feminist theology was one decade behind feminism because the major religions were patriarchal. So they're slower than secular culture to deal with or accept feminism, including their own inherent feminism within the religions. So we really didn't see very much feminist theology or books about it in the 60s. Those were very rare. It really begins in the 1970s with books emerging mainly from Catholic and Jewish feminists like the women in this book, whose, whose work is, is captured in this, in Women's Spirit Rising. Mary Daly, Rita Gross, Elaine Pagels, uh, Merlin Stone, Carol Christ, Judith Pascal. Um, and then, so in the 80s, uh, feminist theology continued with all these authors, but it increased. And that's when it really begins to widen out and spread out. And more work is emerging with women like Rosemary Radford Ruther and Rianne Eisler and others. So the 80s really brought a bigger exposure and a bigger explosion of feminist theology, just like feminism had done in the 1970s. So it's just kind of one decade behind. And that's in American culture that I'm talking about. Um, so in the 70s and even the early 80s, there were very few college courses or programs that focused on uh, feminism and religion or feminist theology. You know, we had women's studies departments and programs that were growing and thriving in colleges in the 1980s, like the program I went through in the 1980s at the University of Utah. But there were very few courses or programs that were really focused on women and religion. We only had one course at the U of U in the 1980s and early 90s on women and religion, and that was one that I co-taught with Bella Evans about women and Mormon culture. 
Um, so it's interesting that the Harvard uh, Divinity School Women's Studies in Religion program was the first university program in the United States to focus on the study of women and religion exclusively. And that was mm. in 1973. Hmm. So that gives you a sense of how feminist theology is kind of coming along a decade after, you know, later than feminism. So women's studies and religion was emerging in the major schools, the Ivy League, you know, in the 70s. And then uh, there were a few programs that began taking hold in more colleges and courses and majors later in the 1980s and the early 90s, which is when feminist theology and women in religion programs really began to take off at other schools like Claremont, you know, and other schools. So anyway, so that's a, a, an important context, I think, to understand where feminist theology is at in 1979. It's just crossing, you know, into that new decade where it's going to explode and go mainstream. Um, and so Women's Spirit Rising really captures that, but it enables it. It The book really, um, really enabled uh, feminist theology to take off by basically, you know, pulling together all these texts and in one book and then making them available to a wider audience. Um, it's interesting to think, and this is just kind of a, a his, an odd historical point. <laughs> it's interesting that um, secular feminism in America itself arose from religious women and religious feminists who took their religious spirituality out into society and politics and, you know, took their Christianity out into social reform. So mm -hmm. for example, Anne Browdy's book, uh, Radical Spirits, she's a professor at Harvard Divinity School and she actually leads the women's studies and religion program there. Um, her book explored how the women's rights movement and women's spiritualism in America were intertwined. So the role of religion in women's history and the women's rights movement was, you know, were very intertwined. Feminism actually began in religion in the 1800s and then moved outward into society, but then it took a long time for feminism to come back home to mm -hmm. religion mm -hmm. and find itself accepted back in its own roots, other than, you know, those few wonderful egalitarian faiths, faiths like, you know, the Quakers mm -hmm. and, and others who uh, were feminist all along. That's yeah, what I was thinking as you were saying that, as I'm just picturing the Grimke sisters and Lucretia right. Mott and everybody that was fighting for that in the 1800s, they're always Quakers. <laughs> right, right. And so in the 1800s, early and mid 1800s, you have these, these Christian women, you know, motivated to, to uh, undertake social causes and, um, mm -hmm. you know, feminist work. Yeah, mm -hmm. abolition, and then of course, suffrage. And they're motivated mm -hmm. by their, their spiritual their spiritual lives and beliefs and religious beliefs and ethics, you know, and then, and so they go out and launch American feminism. And then in, in some cases in the major patriarchal religions, it's, it takes a long time for that to come back home and couple circle, you know, and we see this in Mormonism. I'll just throw in the Mormon example again, right here. Um, because the LDS faith was a leader in feminist innovations within the church in the 1830s and forties, 10 to 20 years before the Seneca Falls convention. And then Mormon feminists took their testimony of, of, of LDS women's agency and authority and equality in the kingdom of God out into the larger social sphere and communities in the 1850s through the 1890s. And they were pursuing vocations and training and, and owning their own businesses and careers and medicine and education and nursing and, 
and then especially they were pioneers in the suffrage movement. Um, so, and, and this really originated out of uh, their having gotten the vote in the church in 1830, you know, so they carried that all the way through from 1830 to 1870 and then, um, you know, into the 20th century. Yet Mormon feminists lost ground, you know, within the Mormon faith in the 19th century a great deal. And so Mormon feminism kind of reemerged in the 1970s and 80s and 90s uh, to kind of try to bring feminism back home. And that brought conflict and backlash. So it's really only been in this, this new century, you know, the 21st century, that Mormon feminist theology and Mormon feminism within our own religion is finally finding wider understanding and recovery and acceptance within the church. So back to 1979, just to finish this larger context for Women's Spirit Rising, and I hope I'm not too confusing with going back and forth between Women's Spirit Rising and then my book and Mormonism and then Back to American Feminism. Well, I was just going to say, actually, for listeners, um, I mean, one easy way of thinking about it, especially for for listeners who are not Mormon or not familiar with Mormonism, is that Woman Spirit Rising doesn't have any Mormon um, feminist theologians in that anthology. And so, you know, it, that's an easy way to separate it. It's Judeo-Christian. It's, it's Jewish and Christian writers. And then in Weaving the Visions, they incorporate some indigenous traditions and African traditions. But then... Um, our guest Maxine Hanks's book, Women and Authority, is a Mormon project, but that's accomplishing the same thing, but just in a different denomination. So I, I, you're not being confusing at all, but I just thought I'd throw in that little. Oh, that's um, excellent. For Mormon feminist theology, you can go to my book. It's online. You can go to Signature Books um, Library, and the whole thing is online. And for the yeah American feminist theology of Judaism and Christianity, then go to uh, Woman's Spirit Rising. So in 1979, uh, Carol and Judith, they looked at all the pioneering work that feminist theologians had been doing in the 1970s, and they wanted to kind of bring it all together and then summarize it, organize it to kind of map the, the main approaches that the feminists were taking in this work and, and then gather the major voices and then make them more available to the general public you know, by putting them all together in one anthology. And this was so needed at this time to make the few groundbreaking voices um, in feminist theology of the 70s more known and available and um, helpful to other women who were struggling with the same issues. So that's what they did with Women's Spirit Rising. They created a reader that would bring the key pioneers and their pioneering work on feminist theology forward and legitimize it and make it well-known and usable you know, widely to really help educate and inspire other women to do that feminist work. And this book succeeded immensely. Women's Spirit Rising was a watershed moment in American feminist theology, concretizing, you know, that as a subfield in both women's studies and in religious studies as the intersection of those two fields. And it really let women everywhere know that feminist theology is real. It's happening. It's needed. It's not your imagination. <laughs> There's a whole you know book full of women doing it, and you know really uh, sophisticated scholars from the major Ivy League schools and elsewhere. So it, that book really inspired so many women in so many religions to engage feminist theology in their own cultures and studies. That as a result, the 1980s saw an explosion of feminist work on religion and theology, both in its colleges, you know, universities, and within religious cultures and churches. 
So, and it's interesting to note that, you know, likewise, female clergy were emerging in the 1970s and 80s in Presbyterian and Lutheran and Episcopalian and Anglican and and Community of Christ, which used to be RLDS uh, churches. Um, But it was really the articles and books that took hold more in the 1980s. Um, And I remember attending the 1989 conference for the Scientific Study of Religion, which was actually held in Salt Lake. And I listened to a panel of Roman Catholic, Sikh, Jewish, Southern Baptist, and Mormon women all compare notes on where were women at in, in each of those religions and where was feminist theology at at that point. And um, they all found the same consensus, which was really interesting, that women were no longer waiting for approval from male religious leaders, but moving ahead with their own mm. feminist theological investigations. Mm. And, and I think that that was really helped <laughs> and supported by Women's Spirit Rising, which came out one decade earlier in 79, because this conference was in 1989. Uh, so, you know, that was an important, important moment. Um, I had, this is the other thing that's so interesting, going back to context and then how my work comes in at that time. Um, at that time, in the late 80s, I had the very same idea that Chris and, uh, Chris and Pascal had in Women's Spirit Rising. I, I used the same approach. I had the same inclinations <laughs> to just gather all the major texts and then organize it and, and, and create categories to kind of put the feminist work into. Um, but, you know, my work on that book on women and authority began and was mostly done before I had even seen Women's Spirit Rising. Um, I hadn't seen their book yet. Um, so we were operating from a similar vision, but, you know, completely independently. And we were both really working to validate feminist theology. Um, and I, I didn't see the book until I was almost done working on mine. And um, I really wish I had seen their book before I started. It would have helped me a lot, but it's actually uncanny. When I discovered their book, I couldn't believe how similar our books were. They, they were just like the same book, but in two different cultures, you know, mm. it was just so similar. Mm. Um, even the way we organized our introduction and our sections and even the things we were both saying in our introductions, there are places where, where I say verbatim in my introduction, what they said in their introduction. Mm. Um, so um, the main thing was that both Women's Spirit Rising and my book, Women in Authority, both wanted to validate legitimize feminist theology. And I wanted to make our own Mormon feminist theology um, more known and available. But also I was trying to show that it was inherent in our own tradition and history. Feminist theology was not some secular agenda that feminists were imposing on the LDS church. You know, that mm. was a big deal. I wanted to recover like our own unique homegrown feminism and feminist theology. Um, and so I researched Mormon feminism and history and feminist theology within LDS texts and scriptures and documents from the 1820s to the present. And I selected the major voices and texts and excerpts, and I commissioned some new articles on, on current work that was happening at that time. And then I pulled it all together in one book, and it was really gutsy. It was a whole lot of new cutting, cutting edge, overt feminist work. Um, 
which had been feared and repressed for so long that when I published the book in 1992, it shocked people. I mean, it even shocked liberal Mormons and feminists. <laughs> it was a bombshell. And so the reactions were really intense. What happened was I and five of my contributors were all, we were all excommunicated from the church. And um, that was, that was stressful and depressing because we all worked so hard to bring forth what we saw as the repressed and beautiful and inherent female and feminine side of our tradition. And then to be feared and punished so severely, it was pretty, it was really pretty hard on everybody. And mm -hmm. it was, it was a negative watershed moment <laughs> that a lot of people still refer to as the September 6th moment in Mormon culture. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's what happens. We knew the risk. And so, um, did you really feel that way at the time? Like, yep, we knew the risk. And so like they called yeah. you in for a council and you went on trial and they said you're excommunicated. I mean, you weren't, had you really thought through what that would feel like for you? When, oh, totally. when you, totally. you had? We, all had, we all had, we'd all been doing groundbreaking cutting edge uh, work in Mormon studies for five to 10 years and some longer. I think Mike Quinn and Levina. Fielding Anderson, who were both excommunicated with me, they'd been doing work in Mormon studies for probably 20 years. And yeah, we all were very, very familiar with the risks and we knew what the risks were and we were willing to take them. And I, I was pretty confident that I would be excommunicated for the book. In fact, I, I remember when I was trying to finish the book, I was racing to see which would happen first, um, whether I could get the book out and in print or whether I'd be excommunicated first. Because when I was working on the book and I was delivering papers at conferences and speaking about it, um, you know, some church people caught wind of that. And I started being called in and questioned while I was working on the book. So I was, I was actually being questioned while I was working on it. And it, yeah, I was, I was very aware. And I, and I was, like I said, I was very willing to, to pay that price. I kind of expected that would happen. I felt that excommunication, particularly for feminist theology was a really worthy thing. And, and I had spiritual experiences about it all along the way. I was very prayerful all through that project. And I felt really guided in that project. So I felt utterly confident that I was doing God's work and that yeah. it, did, it didn't matter what happened. Joan of Arc. <laughs> I really did. I really felt that, that it, it, was, it was a better, higher calling to, to uh, recover our, our lost feminism and feminist theology and women's priesthood and our mother in heaven. My book included articles and personal voices and scholarship on women's relationship to priesthood and how women were ordained in ways in the early church and did were seen as having priesthood and were able to exercise priesthood and did give blessings and healings and um and and that our tradition of the mother god was was present and women were interacting with that so my book recovered all of that Mm -hmm. And it, it felt like a sacred task. And so mm -hmm. I really, I really felt that I took the higher, you know, the higher choice <laughs> and I was, I was fine with that. And I was very comforted. My spirituality and my relationship to God really comforted me. So I, it yeah. really was, I actually was kind of different. I think than other people at that time, other, I, I think other people were really quite devastated mm -hmm. and I was just kind of mad at the church for, for being so, I don't know, um, unevolved or something. I just Draconian. Thought, yeah. I thought, come on, this is, yeah. this is holy work. But no, I wasn't personally upset about it. I, I, I felt like I had really succeeded and done what I came here to do. 
in life. That's amazing. I'm, I am so inspired by hearing that story. I've always wondered, I'd, I'd hoped that we could talk about it because just for listeners, I mean, I, I was at BYU right after you and your colleagues were excommunicated. And I was in the English department too, as an English major. And I, Maxine, you and I talked about this when we first, you know, talked Mm -hmm. about, I, I had never even heard of those excommunications until I had already graduated from BYU. It was so hushed. And so kind of like they cleaned up the, the, <laughs> the debris from the bombing. And I walked in and I was like, cool. Like, like nothing happened here. And it was only later that I was like, oh my gosh. And cause there were, you know, professors that were getting excommunicated yeah. in my English, yeah. you know, in the English department fired. that I, yeah, oh Cecilia, my gosh. Fired, Cecilia Conchar yeah. Farr and Gail Houston. Yeah. They yeah. were fired. Part of that problem and part of the reason why it was so covered up so this will make you feel better, um, Amy, is that there were very few feminists in the 1980s who were even willing to use the word feminism. It was a bad Mm -hmm. word Mm -hmm. because it had been so tainted by Sonia Johnson's excommunication. Mm -hmm. Everyone was terrified to call themselves a feminist. Mm -hmm. And again, I have to say, well, this is just, I don't know, for listeners, however old you are, I had never heard the name Sonia Johnson either. Mm -hmm. And um, a member of my extended family... (laughs) Um, actually it's a member of my husband's family. So when I married into the family, this person would always talk about Sonia Johnson. And finally I was like, who's Sonia Johnson? (laughs) And she's like, you don't know, but I, it was just, it was before my time, but yes, a lot of the, the generation older than me and even half a generation older than me too, like was absolutely, I mean, it was effective. The church just put the, yeah. Yeah, the kilbosh on. I mean, I think everybody just went underground, went silent. It was really effective for a while, but then I f- feel like there was a growing like underground backlash. That then it took a while to gather momentum. But I was there when it was like all again, all was quiet after the bomb went off, and so right. quiet that I didn't even know what had happened. Anyway, and listeners should look up Sonia Johnson, just look her up online and just kind of to check out what happened. She was involved in the ERA and stuff, but this is fascinating context, especially for, for Mormon listeners, but continue Maxine. Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. In fact, she founded Mormon, uh, Mormons for ERA. Yes. And that's what she was excommunicated for. And you can read excerpts from the Mormons for ERA newsletter and from Sonia Johnson's book in my book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for, this is why I compiled the book. You know, I wanted women to know their feminist history because I had felt so alone in the seventies. Like mm-hmm. I was this feminist weirdo and I was the only one, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't want other women to feel alone. Like I had, I wanted them to know their feminist history. And um, so, yeah, read, read women in authority. And there are a bunch of other books that have come out since then. Um, read them, know your feminist history. But, but, you know, okay, so a couple of things to respond to what you just said. Um, one of the problems, like I said, is nobody was using the term feminist. Right. And so when Sonia Johnson was excommunicated, then that did freak everybody out and people did kind of go underground. Feminists were afraid to come out and do anything or, or really admit that they were feminists. There were a few brave souls who were carrying on, but most, most Mormon women really went undercover and, and so nobody was willing to use the word feminist and, or I won't say nobody, but very few, I probably Mm -hmm. knew less than half a dozen women who Mm -hmm. were willing to use, I mean, these are feminists who were willing, who were, you know, willing to use the word feminist. And, um, 
And that was one of the reasons why I felt like, okay, I need to do this book and I need to put the word feminism in the title. So it's Women and Authority, Reemerging Mormon Feminism. And I can't tell you how many Mormon feminists tried to talk me out of using the Hmm. word feminism in the title. Hmm. And this was 1988, 89. And I said, no, this is the whole point. I felt like I had to take the stigma away. I felt like I had to exonerate Sonia. And when the book came out, Jan Tyler, who was in Mormons for ERA, and she was very close to Sonia, she was close to me when I was working on the book and very supportive of me and helped me. When the book came out, she said, Maxine, you've you've vindicated Sonia and and Mormons Mm. for ERA. And I really, yeah, I really felt that I felt it was so important to remove the stigma, reclaim the F word (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, and heal because the scars and the divisions, oh my gosh, when I was going around, you know, from 1987 to 89 and 90, you know, compiling information, visiting feminist groups, listening to them, interviewing, you know, older ladies who were feminists, I could not believe the fear and anger and divisions that were still in all those groups and the way that feminists in different groups were afraid of each other and didn't mm-hmm. like each other and didn't trust each other. The scars from the fallout and the polarization that Sonia's excommunication had caused in 1979. As I I said this in the introduction to my book, that those scars are still evident today and Mm -hmm. and Mormon feminists. So, um, and the other thing, so there were maybe a half dozen women I knew who were even willing to use the word, but the word, the term feminist theology, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, that had never been used anywhere. You can, and I'm pretty confident because I read everything Women in Authority, my introduction, as far as I know, was the first book in Mormon studies to use the term feminist theology. Mm-hmm. And I was really determined to do it. And people tried to talk me out of that too. But I said, no. And so I said, we have to reclaim this. We, mm-hmm. and, I, and that's why I knew I'd be exed. I mean, I knew. I knew I was going to be exed because I thought somebody has to do this. And if I have to be excommunicated, so be it. It's worth the price. So... Um, my book, Women in Authority, functioned just like Women's Spirit Rising did um, to both capture the, the burst of, of feminist theology that was happening and also make it available to a wide audience to really help more feminist theology be uh, developed. And um, even though I didn't find Women's Spirit Rising until the very end when I was finishing my book, it was crucial because I couldn't believe how similar the books were and it totally validated what I had just done because I was a bit insecure and worried. I, I really thought I would be excommunicated. And here was this book that validated that I had done the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a lot of strength and, and uh, confidence to face what came, which mm-hmm. was the excommunication and all the fallout. Um, so Women's Spirit Rising came along at a time in American feminism when Feminist theology and women's studies and religion were not widespread, but they were emerging within feminism as another movement. And it it really gave all of us the giant boost of validation and courage that we needed. Wow, that was really, really fascinating and meaningful for me personally. And just that context is um, so valuable as we look at these books, honestly. So thank you, Maxine, for all of that. So let's, before we dive into the um, passages that we want to share, 
I'll just briefly introduce the editors um, as I usually do. So Carol Patrice Christ was born to a Protestant Christian family in California in 1945. She obtained her PhD from Yale and has served as a professor at universities such as Columbia University and Harvard Divinity School. Her best-known publication is Why Women Need the Goddess, which was initially a keynote presentation at the Great Goddess Reemerging Conference at UC Santa Cruz in 1978. This essay helped to launch the goddess movement in the United States and other countries, and it discusses the importance of religious symbols in general and the effects of male symbolism of God on women in particular. Christ calls herself a theologian with an A. So instead of a theologian, it's a theologian. And that's derived from the ancient Greek theia, which is goddess, um, instead of the masculine term that we're used to. So it's hard for listeners to hear the difference, but it's really cool reading it because every time there's that A in there instead of the O, you're like, oh, right, this is <laughs> this is feminist theology. So <laughs> can I just really interject? Cool, Please. Oh, it is. Can I just interject one thought? I did the same thing in 1991. I wrote an article, a column called Mormon Thea dash Logi Logi. Did you really? And, you yeah, guys needed to meet each other. My goodness. I, we did, and I did not know she had done that. I came really? up with that. My, yeah, I came up with that myself. I didn't. I didn't even know she'd done that. And th- because I was working on my book then, the book hadn't come out yet, and so I hadn't discovered Women's Spirit Rising yet. And it was published in the Mormon Women's Forum Quarterly as a column. We were, and I wanted to launch a column, a, a regular column where Mormon women could write in their experiences of theology. So, oh, anyway, I, I love that. Toss oh, that cool. in. <laughs> yes, I love it. I was going to say there's something in the air. Like honestly, there's there was something moving in the in the spirit world or something that was working <laughs> on you at the same time. Yeah. Carol Chris's work has helped to create a space for the field of theology to be far more inclusive of women than has historically been the case. She is the director of the Ariadne Institute for the Study of Myth and Ritual, where she conducts pilgrimages to sacred sites in Greece, mostly Crete, as listeners will not be surprised, those of you who remember our episode on the chalice and the blade. And Chris lives on the Greek island of Lesbos, which was the home of the poet Sappho. Judith Plaskow was born to a Jewish family in New York in 1947. Throughout junior high and high school, Plaskow dreamed of becoming a rabbi, even though women rabbis were unheard of and opposed by many, including her own rabbi. However, even she had reservations. She wanted to be a trailblazer, but wasn't absolutely certain that she believed in God. She says that her life changed one day during closing services on Yom Kippur when she realized that she could get a doctorate in theology instead. Had she become a rabbi, she would have been only the second ever female rabbi. But she says that she was born a theologian, and so she's sure she made the right choice. Plaskow earned her doctorate at Yale University, where she met Carol Christ, and they became fast friends. She taught at Manhattan College afterwards for 32 years before becoming a professor emeritus, and she was one of the creators of the Journal for Feminist Studies in Religion and served as editor for its first 10 years. She also helped to create Banat Esh, a Jewish feminist group and a feminist section of the American Academy of Religion. 
Plaskow's work has been extremely important in developing Jewish feminist theology. Her most significant work, Standing Again at Sinai, Judaism from a Feminist Perspective, argued that the absence of female perspectives in Jewish history has had a negative impact on the religion, and she urged Jewish feminists to reclaim their place in the Torah and in Jewish thought. It is one of the first Jewish feminist theological texts ever written and is considered by some to be one of the most important Jewish texts of the 20th century. And in fact, um, on her Wikipedia page, it calls her the first Jewish feminist theologian. That's quite a title. So Drs. <laughs> Carol Christ and Judith Plaskow published Woman's Spirit Rising, a feminist reader in religion in 1979, as Maxine talked about. And it's, um, again, as we explained, it's an, it's an anthology. So it has many different women's essays on feminist theology on different topics. And the edition that I read for this episode was published in 1992. And in the preface to that edition, the editors explained that like so many other feminist projects from the 1970s, and and for me as a reader, I was thinking especially back to Our Bodies Ourselves, it was written by all white women. And in some of their essays, they claimed universality for quote-unquote women's experiences, but were com completely left out the perspectives of women of color. So realizing that, in 1989, Kristen Plaskow expanded their project and they published a new anthology of feminist theological writings featuring more diverse voices. And so that's what Weaving the Visions is. It's Weaving the Visions, New Patterns in Feminist Spirituality. And that includes um, still Christian and Jewish perspectives and still there are some white women in there, but there's also Native American women and black women and Asian women. And so they just um, include more voices. So we'll be sharing passages from both books today. You know, um, one thing I just thought I would add is I, I was struggling with a similar problem. You know, Carol Christ, they explain in the book that they acknowledged that they left out those voices, but they said we were working with what was available too at the time. And some of those voices weren't being published because they were mm. marginalized. Mm. And I had the same struggle. I was looking for voices of color and, and um, LGBT voices. And it was so hard to find any that were willing to, mm. to come out and, and be in the book. But I did, I found, I found a couple of women of color and I think one gay woman, and that was probably, you know, but I, I tried, I really tried. It was, it was mm. harder in the eighties. Hmm. That's a great point that, yes. I mean, I think Plaskow and Chris do, like you said, they acknowledge that it was a blind spot for them, but that is a great point that they, that marginalized voices just weren't being published at the time. So. And especially LGBT voices. I mean, many of them were in the you know closet and trying to stay safe and keep their jobs. In well, the especially 80s. all of these, if they're religious too, because that's the exactly. <laughs> that's the arena you're working in. It, exactly. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great point. It, and that was a huge um, hurdle and and a tension that I encountered when I was working on the book was everybody's fear of coming mm. out and being in this book. You know, so yeah. Mm. That's yeah. That's really valuable insight. And the last thing I, I, that I wanted to highlight before we read the, some passages from the books is that in the preface of Woman's Spirit Rising, the editors talk about their experience at, um, at Yale as PhD students. And that really brought to mind the book, Keep the Damned Women Out, The Struggle for Co-Education, that we 
covered in an episode a little while ago, they talk about presenting research ideas on women in Judaism or women in Christianity. And they would go in, you know, armed with credible and exciting source material. And all of their professors were men. And when they would come in and say, I I really want to research this, they would be just mocked or dismissed or their professors would get angry at them. And it reminded me, even when you were talking, Maxine, that um, of this passage in that book where a woman went in to ask a professor if they could start a class on the, uh, women's history. And the professor replied, we might as well start a class on the history of dogs. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and it was uh, from the, the very same, same time, the 60s and mm-hmm, 70s. So mm-hmm. Christ and Plaskow really turned to each other for support to keep their sanity. And, um, and they say in the introduction that if they hadn't had each other, for support, then they might have dropped out of the program because it was so hostile to the things that they wanted to study. And it's cool too because again, one of them's Jewish, one of them, one of them is Christian, and they really, I mean, they felt a kinship both as people of the book, but they had very different perspectives, and I that really enriched their experience, and it, it really enriched the book. I thought too. Yeah, and that was a very common uh, situation for feminists in the '60s and '70s, and even in the '80s in Utah. You know, we were kind of holding on to each other because um, the institutions were so male centric and and Mm -hmm. feminist work was so suspicious. And so, for example, the women's studies class, the one women in religion class at the U of U that I co-taught with Bella Evans, she had to go in and fight battles every single year from 1982 to 98 when we finally stopped teaching it. She had to fight to keep that course. Wow. Boy, I need to be really, really grateful. And when, and then they also say, and this was really inspiring to me that that actually they were grateful for all of the hostility and the adversity they they encountered because they say that it really opened their eyes to the injustice of patriarchy and it turned them into feminists, right? And so yeah. they said, yeah, I mean, out of the crucible, you know, they emerged with the motivation and, you know, the epiphanies and it really propelled them to do their life work. And so that was just, um, I'm really glad that they shared that personal experience mm-hmm. in the, in the introductions. Well, let's dive in, Maxine. What were some of the, the, um, the constructs or themes or how would you like to introduce the portion that you wanted to share? You know, I wanted to talk first about the structure of the book how they approached the topic, uh, which I thought was a major contribution of Women's Spirit Rising, um, the way that they mapped uh, four problems that feminists were facing and then four uh, basic feminist approaches and that feminists were using in their work. And, you know, they were kind of criticized. This is one of the criticisms that they got for their work because they, they were told that, that by coming up with these categories, they were too simplistic and they kind of implied or, or posed uh, revolutionary feminists against the reformers as if the revolutionary feminists were better than the reformist feminists. And that's not where they were coming from at all. Um, but they addressed it honestly, you know, in, in their second edition, in um, the, you know, the preface to their second edition. And they explained that, you know, they were just trying to uh, provide categories that would be useful to help they were trying to validate different approaches was their intent. They wanted to mm-hmm. show there's not just one feminist approach here. You know, there, there are really different ones. And so what they were trying to do was validate both the reformers and the revolutionaries. 
And so I really love the structures that they came up with. They basically said that they, they didn't want their book to have one conclusion or sort of, you know, synthesize it all together into one approach or one view. They were saying that they loved those tensions, showing the different, even the opposite approaches that different feminist theologians were taking. And they wanted to preserve that in the book. They wanted to show um, that women could take really opposite approaches. And for example, someone who's trying to recover and preserve their tradition and find the feminine within it versus someone who's saying, oh, I don't want to deal with that at all. I'm breaking out and going off in a whole new creative direction. So they really loved that, that tension and they, they really preserved that. They worked that tension of different approaches and opposite points of view um, into the structure of their book. And, and, and I love that. They, they said in their preface, um, some might wish to resolve these numerous tensions in feminist theology and vision, but we find them creative and exhilarating. So I want to just name those four approaches that they came up with. They first they cited what they saw are the are the four problems that feminist theologians were facing in, in the religions, all the religions. The first one was the exclusively male religious language and constructs about God. Second, the limited or false dualistic thinking pervading religion that privileges God and man and spirit and the intellectual over the human, the female, the body, the emotional. Um, so that duality. They also talked about the, the need for women's own experience and history apart from men's. Since it, you know, religion was so male centric. And then number four, the need to create new ritual and theology. So these were the four problems they, they identified that feminist theologians were facing. And then they, they came up with, when they looked at all the feminist work to date and what they were compiling for the book, they came up with four approaches, which are not as crystal clear as I'm, I'm articulating them. I kind of pulled this out of their book, what I got out of it. But here are the four approaches that I see them identifying and taking. Number one is feminist criticism and inquiry of the existing systems and texts and structures to, to first see and locate the problem and evaluate what's there and what isn't, you know, are women there or not, you know, and decide, does this theology omit or include women? Is this male or female? You know, what is it? So that's the first approach that, that some feminist theologians were taking was just sort of inquiry and criticism. The second approach that they talk a lot about is feminist reform or reformers who go in and edit, revise, recover, transform the existing traditional religion or theology and find or reclaim uh, a female or feminine from within the existing male texts, the inherited tradition that women are working in. And this, of course, mainly applied to the Jewish and the Christian traditions. Um, I noticed that they left Islam out for the most part, not totally, but it's, it, you know, Muslim feminists don't show up much in, in this book mm -mm. at mm -mm. all. Um, and number three is revolution. So revolutionary feminist theology that resists, shatters, you know, undoes the sexism and re rejects the inherited tradition and texts and uh, standards. And instead is looking for um, other or new or women's ritual or traditions or texts. 
It's, it's trying to, to sort of shatter through and discover a whole new side or dimension rather than just, you know, trying to work within what's there. And then fourth, the creative uh, feminist theology that, that really goes beyond, you know, either the inherited or the shattered. It's just completely outside of, of what the religion has been or even outside of the religion itself. It's looking for a whole new vision beyond what has been known or done uh, inside or outside of the traditions, inventing a new God, new theologies, new rituals, new mysticism. So these are the four approaches that they see the authors in this book taking. Okay, so I'm just going to dive in and describe each of the four sections. And then I'm going to share a quote or two from articles in each section of the book that really illustrate the theme and the the approach or the methodology that that section is trying to um, share. So Kristen Plaskow explained in, in the book that one thing all the authors have in common is all of them are addressing the problem that Western religion is profoundly sexist. Its ideas and doctrines, images and symbols are products of male perceptions of reality and have legitimized and reinforced the subordination of women. So then they go on to say that all of the authors are addressing that, but they're addressing it in very different ways. So the first section is titled, The Essential Challenge. Does theology speak to women's experience? And the word essential there has a double meaning. They're referring to essentialist feminism mm -hmm. or woman-centered feminism that focuses on the female experience in a body is essentially different from male experience as a separate, different reality. And so this section is really addressing the approach of revolutionary feminism and also the female-centric, the woman-centered approach of a different woman-centered theology rather than using a male theology. Um, and it, this section is kind of asking you know, do women need a different female God and theology and priesthood and even a different female religion? Anyway, here's a quote from one of the articles in this section by Valerie Saving. She says, I am a student of theology. I'm also a woman. I put these two assertions beside each other to imply that one's sexual identity has some bearing on their theological views. Theology has been written almost exclusively by men. So I criticize contemporary theologians from the viewpoint of feminine experience. So she's really advocating um, a female-centric, a different um, essential female feminist theology. One passage that I pulled out from Weaving the Visions is by Judith Plaskow in her essay on Jewish memory. And she says that the Torah itself is an account of what she calls God wrestling, um, where people have experiences with the divine that are mysterious and um, really challenging and hard to capture in words. And she says that the Torah, as it is written, only includes men's God wrestling, men's experiences. And of course, those experiences are perceived and described within a very patriarchal construct. So then she describes that ancient Jewish sources like the Kabbalah describe a primordial Torah, 
like the Torah before the Torah, which was written in fire before the world began. And so she describes that there's this process of making the earthly Torah better reflect the pre-existent Torah. And she says, quote, half the souls of Israel have not left for us the Torah they have seen. Insofar as we can begin to recover the God wrestling of women, insofar as we can restore a part of their vision and experience, we have more of the primordial Torah, the divine fullness of which the present Torah of Israel is only a fragment and a sign. End quote. Um, wow. Yeah, I thought that was powerful. I loved the... Um, that concept of that, that there was a fullness that has been lost in the world. And a lot of different, you know, feminist theologians present it that way, that they're kind of calling their religion to repentance and that they're also calling them back to what was, you know, the fuller and more complete version that, that was messed up by men along the way. But I thought that was really beautiful, especially when she says half the souls of Israel have not left for us the Torah they have seen. It just was, um, I thought a beautiful way of describing that. Mm, it's really powerful. So that takes us to section number two, which is titled the past. Does it hold a future for women? And I thought I would read two quotes from this section, one by Phyllis Tripple's article on the, her feminist reading of Genesis. And then Elaine Pagel's um, on what became of God, the mother. Phyllis Tripple says, on the whole, the women's liberation movement is hostile to the Bible, and it claims the Bible is hostile to women. So many feminists read the Bible to reject. My suggestion is that we reread to understand and reappropriate. Ambiguity characterizes the meaning of Adam in Genesis 2 and 3. Adam is a generic term for humankind. So deity is speaking to both the man and the woman. So there she's showing how she's doing a feminist reading, rereading and reinterpretation of Genesis, um, which I've done actually quite a lot in my work. And then um, Elaine Pagels, um, who I met and, and knew and interacted with both in Salt Lake and at Harvard. And I love her work. It's been a big part of my a theological journey. She, of course, uncovered um, and translated various Gnostic Christian texts. Mm -hmm. And here's what she has to say about recovering or what happened to um, the female God in Christianity. She says, unlike many of his contemporaries among the deities of the ancient Near East, the God of Israel shares his power with no female divinity. Indeed, the absence of feminine symbolism of God marks Judaism and Christianity and Islam in striking contrast to the world's other religious traditions, whether in Egypt, Babylonia, Greece, and Rome, or Africa, Polynesia, India, and North America. However, Jewish and Christian Gnostic works which were attacked and condemned as heretical, abound in feminine symbolism that is applied in particular to God. Instead of a monistic and masculine God, these texts, the heretical texts, 
describe God as a dyadic being who consists of both masculine and feminine elements. And of course, her article goes on to talk about how Gnostic texts preserve the feminine in Christianity in ways that the Bible did not. So her work really offers heretical and, and Gnostic and apocryphal texts as rich sources of feminist theology and female images of God. And I just have to add that that's where I went after my excommunication from Mormonism. I went to Gnostic Christianity mm. because the feminine was there and because mm -hmm. female authority was there. So that's where I located my spiritual path and my spiritual work and took my liturgical studies and clergy work in Gnostic Christianity for about mm -hmm. 15 or 20 years. Okay, so section three is titled Reconstructing Tradition. And this is the section that deals with the revisionist or the reformer approach within tradition. So Elizabeth Schusler Ferenza has an article in this tradition, Rita Gross talking about female God language in Jewish contexts. Nellie Morton is talking about the dilemma of celebration. Judith Plaskow is talking about bringing her daughter to the covenant. Um, and, and other Jewish women are talking about women's Sabbath prayers um, and Seder celebrations. So the, this is the chapter really about the, the reformers and the reconstructionists who are trying to save their tradition and excavate the feminine within it. So I want to quote from Nellie Morton's article, um, on the dilemma of celebration. She says, women appear to be at an impasse in celebration. Traditional symbols root too deeply in a patriarchal culture to function adequately in their new context. And new symbols have not yet emerged. So we are not saying no to the whole created order of things, our traditions. We are saying no to those images, symbols, structures, and practices which cripple us and keep us from claiming our rightful personhood. We began by substituting feminine words of liturgy for those masculine words that exclude women. And our search led us beyond the sexist imagery to the wholeness embedded deep within. I really like that quote. Mm -hmm. Here's another one from Elizabeth Schusler Firenze in this section. And I studied with Elizabeth at Harvard and took mm -hmm. her course on feminist biblical interpretation. And she was the uh, feminist theologian of my dreams. I learned so much <laughs> from her. She was. I amazing. wondered if you'd studied with her. I saw that yeah, she I was at Harvard Divinity School and wondered if you knew her. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow, how yeah, amazing. I, I worked with her and I bought all of her books and read her books, and she's brilliant. So I had to use one of her quotes from her mm -hmm. um, article in this section about uh, feminist spirituality, Christian identity, and tradition, because this quote really captures her approach. She says, My own experience as a woman in the Catholic tradition leads me to question that maleness is the essence of Christian faith and theology. Despite all masculine terminology of prayers, catechism, and liturgy, my commitment to Christian faith 
and love first led me to question the feminine cultural role, which the church had taught me to accept and to internalize. My vision of Christian responsibility and community brought me to reject the culturally imposed role of women in Christianity, not vice versa. Hmm. That's a good summary of her, her approaches. I'd like to also share a passage from an essay of hers because she, she really spoke to me too. I've said things like this as I've struggled and had my own God wrestle with in my faith and she talks about the concept of metanoia, which is mm-hmm. a word that's, I'm, I know you know, but for mm-hmm. listeners, um, it, it means a change of mind. And it's, it's one of the words that in Greek is, is translated as repent or repentance, but it means a change of mind. And she's very bold in kind of what I referred to earlier as like calling the church to repentance and saying like, no, it's actually the church that's off. And she's, she's Catholic, but wow, did I really relate to this passage and kind of ache for something in, in my own faith tradition. Um, she's talking about a, a very practical change of mind that she would like to see happen within Catholicism and in this, you know, on this topic of reforming the church. She says, quote, a positive formulation of a feminist Christian spirituality and identity can never demand of women that they forget their own anger and hurt and overlook the violence done to their sisters. In Christian terms, no cheap grace is possible. At the beginning of the Christian life and discipleship stands metanoia, a new orientation in the life power of the Spirit. Christian theology and the Christian community will only be able to speak in an authentic way to the quest for feminist spirituality and for the religious identity of women when the whole church, as well as its individual members, has renounced all forms of sexist ideology and praxis which are exhibited in our church structures, theologies, and liturgies. The church has publicly to confess that it has wronged women. As the Christian community has officially rejected national and racial exploitation and publicly repented of its tradition of anti-Semitic theology, so it is still called to abandon all forms of sexism. End quote. So, Mm. I mean, I'm not holding my breath (laughs) that that will happen. (laughs) But boy, would it help a lot of people to heal, to have Mm -hmm. it um, actually talked about and apologized and um, yeah, to have it talked about openly and, and have um, church leaders say that they're sad that it happened and renounce it publicly. I think that would go a long way to healing things for women. And, and so I appreciated her just being so bold in calling for that and saying that we can't really proceed to build um a really, you know, a, a fair, a just, and um, um, healthy space for women if women are still asked to forget our own anger and hurt and just, you know, move on without those steps of repentance happening. Mm-hmm. That definitely resonated with me. Yeah, it's extremely powerful because the only way to move past the harms um, 
is to recognize them and come mm-hmm. to an understanding, mutual understanding that there's been real harm going, going on there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to acknowledge that and then um, be able to move together beyond it. So, yep. so, okay. The fourth and last category in the book is creating new traditions. So this relates to that approach that a lot of feminist theologians have to take of necessity with a a whole new vision. So mysticism, vision, um, creating something completely new. This is the revolutionary feminist theology that places primary emphasis on women's experience. So I thought I'd read an excerpt from Naomi Goldenberg's piece on dreams and fantasies as a source of revelation, a feminist appropriation of Carl Jung. I'm a Jung fan, and and I love the role of dreams and visions in Mormon theology, and so I, I thought I'd pick this out. She says, Jungian theory might prove inspirational for feminist work in religion. If we devote energy to formulate spiritual concepts that allow us to maintain a religious view of life apart from the oppressive forms prescribed by traditional religionists. Jung describes how he was motivated to free himself from biblical creeds and how he developed a religious outlook that was utilizing visions fantasies and dreams. I love that quote. And I, it reminds me, um, this topic of creating new ritual and using dreams and using, um, visions and, and a person's individual experience. It, a wonderful, uh, book that we talked about on a previous episode is Sue Monk Kid with The Secret Life of Bees mm-hmm. and also The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. Those are really great places to turn if listeners are thinking about building new rites and rituals that feel authentic and feel more woman-centered. And then I had a couple of passages that I wanted to share from Weaving the Visions. One is a passage from Diani Uwahu who is of the Etowa Band of the Eastern Cherokee Nation. And she writes the essay, Renewing the Sacred Hoop. And this is really neat because that will connect with next week's book as well, which is called The Sacred Hoop by Paula Gunn Allen. But this woman says, quote, Listen to the breath and know it is also the mountain's breath. Mother Mountain has many meridians of energy, just as the human body does. You can feel the mountains in your cheeks just by breathing. Your consciousness is not just in your body. It is in everything. Everything is related. The mountain, too, is your body, so all the better to treat it with respect. As long as you are walking upon the earth, you are like a child in the womb, being fed by this earth. The wisdom of all our ancestors, wherever they come from, basically points to one truth. Everything is in relation to you. Native Americans say, all my relations, acknowledging that connection to everything that is alive. End quote. 
that really speaks to me. I'm a nature girl, and I I always say my church is the mountains and and trees, <laughs> and I do think that that's a powerful source of connection to the self, to the divine, to other beings. Is just going out into nature, and then the other one that I wanted to share is so like I just love her tone. So I'll just let it speak for itself. But this one is from Louisa Tish who is an African-American priestess in the spiritual tradition of West Africa, um, specifically Nigeria. And um, her essay is called Ancestor Reverence in Weaving the Visions. And I have to say, as I read this, I remembered how my friend Rochelle Briscoe, who did our episode on Jane Crow and the law, in her bio at the very beginning, she talked about her African ancestors and how they were a big part of her life. And I I forgot to ask her about that because I was kind of surprised when she said it because she's just like, she's a such a practical, very, very rational, intellectual lawyer. She worked in the Obama administration in the White House and she has a big deal job in tech. And And I just loved hearing from her that she has this connection to her ancestors integrated into her like very modern, very intellectual life. (laughs) And um, so I loved I loved hearing that from Rochelle. And I I really loved this next passage from Louisa T. She says, quote, ancestors function as guides, warriors and healers. These roles are not mutually exclusive of each other. A given ancestor may act in any number or combination of these capacities. It depends on what the person was like during her lifetime and what work she was doing in the spirit world. Was your grandmother a seamstress? Yes? Then take her shopping with you. She'll lead you to the best bargain on attractive, durable, and low-cost clothing. (laughs) You'll have to acquaint her with your style and color preferences, but you should also pay attention to hers. Was Papa a handyman? Yes? Then take him with you when you go house hunting. He can sense the bad wiring, leaky pipes, and deteriorating foundation of the place. He'll steer you toward a better house and then suggest ways to make necessary repairs. You don't know how much they are willing to help you unless you contact them. End quote. And that's like a little woo-woo for me, honestly, like unless I contact them. And then the whole next part of the chapter or on her essay is like how to build a shrine to your ancestors. And like they may want you to move it to a different part of your house. But I so I mean, I I was kind of chuckling, but then I actually thought about my own ancestors. And like I said, I thought about Rochelle. And I just thought, like, what a what a wonderful resource also for people to be able to to tap into and it's and it's such an important part of so many you know religions and mm-hmm. and traditions all over the world but mm-hmm. um not so common i feel like in our culture and in america definitely like communicating with your ancestors and so those were just two examples that mm-hmm. that were proposed as like in the under this you know this topic of create something that works for you. I mean, if you find yourself as a woman in a patriarchal tradition where you just feel on the outside looking in constantly as you see all of, you know, the rights and the, the you know, the saving ordinances only performed by men, do your own. <laughs> like do right. do your own special connecting things to the divine and um those were some that that stood out to me. Yeah, and you know, one one place where you do see spirituality connected to ancestors or the dead, those who've passed on, and, and ritual to go along with that is in the, uh, the Catholic Holy Days, the Days of the Dead, Los Dios yeah. de los Muertos, yeah. yeah, November 1st and 2nd. And so, and, you know, 
I, I participate in that with various friends and I do it myself. Um, oh, cool. To set up a beautiful altar for those who have died. It's, it's a really mm. important ritual, you know, and the candles yeah. and fruit and food for them. And, mm-hmm. um, but also what you mentioned too, about this, you know, this section and these readings of just coming up with something totally new or experimenting, you know, back in the eighties when we were talking about this and, um, and these, you know, these were categories that I proposed as well in, in my book, Women in Authority, that there were these kind of slightly different before categories I saw Mormon, femi- Mormon feminists doing. The last category that I had proposed was um, mysticism, you know, mystical mm-hmm. experience and, and, and new visions. And back then that was pretty new, but now, oh my gosh, there are so many Mormon feminists doing all kinds of new ritual, everything from tarot cards to essential oils to for mm. anointing and healing and, and spiritual energy work, you know, and there's just an explosion, I think of, of actually Mormon women exploring all kinds of avenues of feminist spirituality and, and mm. things that I was not seeing in the eighties or the nineties, you know, other than just these few feminists who were talking about it and doing it, you, it wasn't anything widespread. And now it seems to be a big thing. Mm. Well, it's, it's, really brave, bold ones who are doing it. Cause that's certainly still frowned upon, at least in the circles I travel in. <laughs> like, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, you have to be, yeah, just really self-assured. I mean, which is one of yeah. the themes of this whole thing. This is with your story, certainly. And yeah. then with all of these women writing, taking big risks within their faith tradition saying, yeah, enough is enough. This isn't working for women. So Again, we're either going to revise and work with what we have, or we're going to burn it to the ground and start something new. But religion is important, and that's what what binds all of these women. So, exactly. That, so, as we wrap up, Maxine, what would you say is a main takeaway for you? These categories, these four categories that this book pr- presents, really describe my own my own path, my spiritual path. Um, because I went through the phase of inquiry and critique, and then I went through the phase of recovery, you know, and reform. And then I went through the phase of just totally rejecting it and bursting out of it and going off on my own path. And then I went through this whole phase of mysticism and vision and working there. And then I came back full circle and I actually came back to the LDS church in 2012, um, you know, about 20 years after I'd been excommunicated in order to synthesize them all. So what I've been doing since I came back to the LDS church as a feminist theologian is I'm actually using all four approaches. <laughs> I, I find that I use all four of them and um, because for different aspects of my work, because they're all really valuable and needed. And so I'm kind of synthesizing and integrating all of that now in my, in my own life as, uh, as a feminist and how I relate to religious community and then in my work as a feminist theologian. I would say for me, um, one takeaway, and I had many, but one of them was this quote from the editors, Kristen Plaskow. They say, quote, we believe that the diversity within feminist theology and spirituality is its strength. Each of these feminist positions has a contribution to make to the transformation of patriarchal culture. The fundamental commitment that feminists and religion share to end male ascendancy in society and religion is more important than their differences. Time will tell which strategies will prove most effective in achieving the shared goal. What is clear is that if feminists succeed, religion will never be the same again. End quote. I just want to leave mm-hmm. that with listeners just to 
have open hearts, open minds, open arms. Um, remember to try to have charity toward people who we may disagree with, but that we're all on the same team and, and working toward this shared goal. And I loved that humility and recognizing that we're all learning on this path and that we'll look back and go, oh, that thing I thought, maybe, you know, I, I've learned that that didn't work, but we're trying and we're all in it together. So, well, thank you, Maxine, so much for being here. Again, I learned so much from you and really, really enjoyed reading this book. I highly recommend that that listeners who are interested in this topic buy this book. You'll find yourselves highlighting you know, almost every page. And it was such an excellent addition to the reading list. Maxine, you added it. You alerted me to this book. Mm, and I'm yeah. so grateful that you were the one who discussed it with us today. So thank you. Yeah, it's an important book. It's old. <laughs> but like they said in their introduction, it it's really uh, stood the test of time. It's an important work. You know, mm -hmm. it is. Yep. Well, thank you again. Thanks for being a part of it. Thanks for having and, me. It's just lovely to um, talk about these books with you. I enjoy it so much and I get a lot out of it too. Thank you. Well, and thank you to listeners for being with us. And listeners will be excited. As I said, our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy will be discussing a book that ties in perfectly with this theme. Um, it's a book that based on its subject, we could have placed much earlier on our timeline, actually, because we will at long last be discussing the feminine tradition and the culture of the First Nations who occupied this continent. The book is, as I mentioned earlier, The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions. And it was written by Paula Gunn Allen in 1992. And one of her essays is included in Weaving the Visions, actually. So um, it appeared in both places. Paula Gunn Allen was a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe in New Mexico, and I feel very honored that my dear friend Sherry Crawford will be back on the podcast to discuss this book with me. Um, listeners will probably remember that when Sherry was introducing herself way back on our episode on the creation of patriarchy, she shared that she had recently discovered through DNA testing that the side of her family that she always thought was Mexican or quote unquote Spanish, as her maternal grandmother liked to say, was actually Native American and specifically Pueblo, which was the same nation as Paula Gunn Allen. And so reading this book has been a journey of discovery of her own heritage for Sherry. And I've felt really humbled to witness that. Uh, the book is really fascinating. It's heartbreaking. And it's inspiring, and I'm really excited to discuss it on our next episode. So see if you can get a copy of the book. Again, it's called The Sacred Hoop, Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions by Paula Gunn Allen. And then join us for the conversation next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 